Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm Julian Vigo, and today's guests are Sue Evans and Marcus Evans. Sue Evans is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist trained at the former Lincoln Center for Psychotherapy. Retired after nearly 40 years in the NHS, she now has a private practice in Southeast London. She is a member of the British Psychotherapy Foundation, the London Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Service, and is registered with the British Psychoanalytic Council. As a psychotherapist, she worked for 12 years at the Tavistock and Portman NHSFT in the adult department and also in the Gender Identity Development Service for Children. She was responsible as course organizer for the development and delivery as senior clinical lecturer of several training programs at the Tavistock and a senior fellow at the University of East London. Marcus Evans is a psychoanalyst and was an adult psychotherapist at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust with 40 years experience in mental health, originally training as a psychiatric nurse. After qualifying as a psychotherapist at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust, he took up a post as head of the nursing discipline. Marcus was associate clinical director of the adult and adolescent departments between 2011 and 2015. He has written and taught extensively and is the author of Making Room for Madness in Mental Health, The Psychoanalytic Understanding of Psychotic Communications, published by Karnak in the Tavistock Clinic series. I welcome Sue Evans and Marcus Evans to Savage Minds. Many people, myself included, have been waiting for this book because, as you are more than aware, the subject of gender dysphoria has come into the crosshairs of everything from political philosophy to psychoanalysis to child protection, parenting, and what some might say bizarrely, lesbian politics. So can you give us a primer to your book? What brought you to write this book and what you found in the early days of writing it? Thanks for having us, Julian. So first of all, I think that you may be aware, you may not, that, that both of us in different ways have been involved in this area for a while now. Um, and what, what happened was I used to work at the Tavistock uh, Gender Identity Service uh, for Children uh, a long time ago. And I had concerns even back then about the treatment model of medicalizing the young children. But um, obviously, although I tried to raise concerns at that time, there was a sort of review of the service, a report was made, but things went quiet and then I left the service and really that area was, was quiet for a while. Then obviously Marcus was the director um, at the uh, Tavistock. He was on the board um, of governors following that. Um, after your retirement, weren't you? And so what happened was he heard as a governor about Dr. David Bell's report, where a considerable amount of staff who were working currently at that time in the clinic raised really serious child safeguarding concerns. They felt the children weren't getting good enough treatment, adequate enough assessment or therapeutic work before um, some of them were being referred on for uh, hormone blockers. So he took that up originally with the board. Marcus sort of inherited it, to cut a long story short, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. Um, we then sort of became pulled into it and, and it really felt as though the Tavistock weren't going to listen sufficiently to their own staff's concerns about ch child safeguarding and the lack of, the, of a solid evidence base for the treatment model they were using. 
So then um, the Kira Bell case came about in part because um, there was another parent who contacted us, felt very concerned, and we took that forward with her. I took that forward with her um, for a while. Um, Kira Bell came into the case and, as you know, uh, won that case with um, Mother A. But at the same time, I had said to Marcus, I, I, we had no idea what would happen from the case. But the main reason we both got involved of, in this is because of concern for the children and making sure that, that they were given adequate uh, psychological assessment and, and, and treatment and that people were thinking about this and keeping it as an area in mind. So I said, well, whatever happens really with this case, I think there is a lack of a model um, you know, I think people are going to say, if, if, if Kira and Mother A win, what happens to these children now? Um, you know, what happens to the families? Quite rightly, you know, they kind of get left in, in a sort of vacuum of, of care. So that was it, really. And obviously, you know, we're both we've both got a sort of psychotherapeutic mental health background. I had had the experience of working in the clinic a long time ago. Marcus, throughout his career, has worked um, with transgender adult patients. And then we became involved with the families and so on who were contacting us endlessly because, of course, once our names were, were known as, some, as people who had spoken out about the concerns, we were then overwhelmed with people contacting us, families and so on. So that's a bit of a long answer. I said I'd try and keep it brief, but, but really that was why. So we started writing it about 18 months ago I think yeah because the question of gender dysphoria again it's it's such a thorny issue obviously you two have been working on the issue around children and adolescents but there are many people who are pointing out that the problems of how gender dysphoria came into being in a psychoanalytic and psychological framework need to be questioned in terms of is psychology, is psychoanalysis mandating cures for what many believe to be personality traits? Well, well, the thing is, is that um, after being in psychiatry and uh, psychotherapy for a long time, we're used to, you know, when people get overwhelmed um, and particularly people in sort of who've got maybe a sort of um, a difficulty processing emotions and the sort of conflict between how we think things should be and how they actually are, you know, um, that what you can do is that when the, when the sort of ego comes under pressure, you can, you can narrowly focus on the idea there's one problem and one solution as if under pressure and under the strain of emotional um, turbulence that there's that sort of tendency in in all of us but most of us can re recover a capacity to sit back a little bit and reflect on ourselves and our difficulties with the world sort of broadening things out if you like um, you sort of recover your reflective capacity over time but, but working in psychiatry, what you find is that people, you know, may struggle to do that. And they go down a sort of narrow path of saying this is the problem and this is the solution. Now, this is not unusual. 
working in mental health. It's certainly not unusual with adolescents where there's a lot of turbulence. There's all sorts of changes, biological, sociological, psychological. And one's job is to sort of, especially coming from the Tavistock where we both worked, and which is known for its tradition of thinking about developmental psychology, um, the dynamics of what's going on within families. One sort of saying, taking a position in which you're saying, look, we understand that you're in distress. We, we understand that you think this is the problem and this is the solution. Our experience tells us that we need to sort of take a bit of time, open things up and, and try and understand what's going on for you underneath, sort of off screen, as it were. Um, and this would be, this is very ordinary psychotherapeutic mental health work. And we feel that the politicization of this issue has sort of got in the way of good, ordinary clinical practice. Um, so we wanted to put that, it's not that we're the first people that's written about these things as sort of a long tradition at the Portman um, and of various different psychologists and psychoanalysts thinking about these problems. But, but in a way, they've got sort of lost. And, um, uh, you know, there are many people who've been talking about this for a long time. I don't want to say we're, we're not sort of pioneers, but we wanted to, as Sue's saying, we, we feel that with, the, with the sort of medicalization of what is basically a psychological problem, we wanted to put the psychological understanding in a sort of contemporary setting and, um, and put it back into the mix. Uh, not to say this is the only approach, but more to sort of open up the discussion um, within sort of clinical spheres and to sort of argue um, the case for saying this is a clinical issue, um, not, not a political issue. We're thinking about kids and their lives, and uh, we need to be really cautious before setting them on a sort of train of medical intervention. It needs to be thorough psychological examination. But as Sue's saying that, in a sense, a lot of the services with the services with the affirmative model is this missing psychological model for thinking about what what is going on. Why are these kids presenting in this particular way, and how can we think about it? given that is, there's a lot at stake um, with medical interventions, which despite the arguments are actually um, beyond a certain point irreversible. Yes, well, I'm thinking back to Ken Zucker's problems in Toronto, where you said a word that can potentially get you into hot water, a term, psychological problem. I witnessed this, I've only been working on this about a decade now, but I witnessed this early on when people would say, a psychological issue, even saying the word issue, as long as psychological was attached to it, that was stigmatizing, it was triggering. How dare you? This is like having diabetes. People would try to distance themselves immediately from any kind of psychological nomenclature, including the very things that, as you both know, many of those lobbying within the trans movement, be they trans identified themselves or not, they're pushing back against this, even having any inclusion within the DSM-5. Not all, but there's a tranche of activists that do this. So it seems to me, because I'm coming at this from, let's say, an ethno-psychoanalytic perspective, where I, on the one hand, wonder, where is 
psychoanalysis in this. I do ask this because there's a whole framework. I'm not talking Freud either, but more recently, like Klein or Lacan, where is the framework of how the self constructs themselves through language? Where is desire? And why is material reality being tossed away? And on the other hand, why are people like Ken Zucker and many others, and perhaps yourselves as well, who are critical of the affirmative approach, why is that being pushed asunder in favor of medicalization? Why can't we criticize approaches that, as you just said, might be irreversible, where talk therapy, again, you're not allowed to say therapy, but where therapies and other kinds of processes might help the subject. And there seems to be an imbalance here, sociologically speaking, where you can tell from my accent, I'm a New Yorker, everyone in New York has a therapist, everyone in New York has an analyst, it's kitchen talk at parties. In the UK, it's the opposite. If you suggest even to a good friend that they get some kind of help while going through a rough time, they will say, I'm not crazy, because there's that stigma still. So you have the situation of the stigmatizing of getting some sort of help or being able to say, as you said earlier, psychological problem. And then what the lobby's demanding of many, including the media, that they see this as a choice, like wearing blue. It's almost, I don't want to say a fashion, but as much a choice as it is to order a vegan meal. And I see that there's this this conflict between the two sides, because as you both know, there are many trans-identified people who are frightened by the new politics. They fear that their medical treatments might be taken away if this goes too far. Just to come back to your point about Ken Zucker, Ken Zucker is obviously one of the people that is known for studying in this area, in a way is the biggest name. And and as you as you know, you know, his service was closed down by um, political activists um, and then he was exonerated um, and 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 the, um, but that tells you just how sort of politicized the whole area has become and on the issue of stigma I mean we're all against stigma um, you know stigma and, and that sort of judgmentalism that goes for saying you know this is bad this is unacceptable it's just not helpful but equally, it's unhelpful to go to the other extreme in which you say, then there can be no problem. Because actually then, difficulties get sort of papered over and individuals get left with the problem on their own. So, so in some ways, we're sort of swinging like a pendulum from the sort of stigma, stigmatisation of mental illness, which... Um, we don't think is helpful and that society's moved on and we're much more progressive and open-minded, but equally getting rid of the idea that people have psychological difficulties is like chucking the baby out with the bathwater, which I don't think serves anybody. Um, but that's a sort of social trend, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, we're for saying, looks, so we, we don't know. We, we say, in the opening of the book, we don't know. It's not for us to say what the outcome for the kids that we treat will be. People have got to decide how they're going to live their lives. But we do think there is a role for being cautious, 
for thinking about underlying psychological conditions which are rife in this area and for sort of slowing things down and saying, let's just try and think what's going on for this individual, this kid, in this family? What are the pressures that are being brought to bear? So that, you know, um, we're understanding who this person is, not some narrow preoccupation with, you know, as if there's one problem and one solution, which we think is psychologically um, sort of problematic thinking anyway, because we're, we're complicated as human beings. We've got all sorts of moving parts and all sorts of, that are in sort of dynamic relation to one another. Even if, if sometimes we don't like to think about that, that, that is our experience as mental health practitioners. In your book, you go into so many aspects of this issue from the psychoanalytic ideas regarding gender dysphoria all the way through some of the difficulties in delivering therapy. Could you briefly go over some of the psychoanalytic ideas regarding gender dysphoria? Because one thing that has struck me is recently there's been more input from psychoanalysts, purely psychoanalysts on this issue and often theoretically speaking. This has left me with a lot of questions about how a condition that was largely formulated in the mid-20th century at the height of the Cold War, where women were returning from factories, starting to fly out of the house, suddenly the war ended, they were put back in the house, and we saw conterminous to the rise of their alcoholism and use of, of drugs like Valium. And this was very common in the 50s, actually, for the middle-class housewife specifically. How then gender became something that was codified amidst what seems to me, and I'm reading this, again, uh, not only as a woman, but I'm reading this as a, an anthropologist. It seems that imbued within gender dysphoria are a lot of associations with structural sexism. So to what degree does gender dysphoria as a psychoanalytic construction make room for, if at all, sociological constructions of sexism, which invariably work against women? Gosh, there's, there's a lot. Uh, I feel you've asked a lot, a lot there. I suppose just to sort of pick up on the sort of um, the, the, the ideas, the psychoanalytic ideas mm. and, and why. I think that what we did here was we, we took our experience, you know, of working with and also of talking with colleagues who also work with, because we're sort of in an international network now of people who are, are trying to work psychologically with, with this group of young people. So, so we took you know, the, the, in a sense, the commonalities, the presentations, the, the things we had noticed about the patients who were in our clinic rooms. And, and then, you know, thinking about that, using the psychoanalytic ideas. So I suppose what I'm saying is, we didn't want to make the patients fit the, fit the psychoanalytic peg. What we tried mm. to do was to to really consider the sort of as I say the sort of more and I, I don't like to use the word term more common but but you know they are the sort of they, they are particularly striking in how many of them do present in a similar way you know with the fixed ideas 
feelings of self-hatred for their body, very often not being able to think very much about emotions, not being able to really consider what other people are thinking about their choices and or to be particularly um, uh, able to consider the risks of, of what they're looking forward to. So there were all sorts of things around the patients that the young people that were um, coming into the clinic room, as I say, and I, and I think then, I mean, you've mentioned Klein, because I think Klein particularly um, was helpful in talking about what she, she used to call it, and the, the language is a bit old fashioned, but paranoid schizoid uh, states of mind or depressive states of mind. And, and, and people used to, sort of, when they hear that word, they think, well, it's not very good to be in a depressive state of mind. But her explanation of that really was that, you know, babies tend to be born and they are sort of paranoid schizoid. The, the world is either amazing and they're in bliss or, you know, they're very, very upset and screaming and red with rage. And, and, and then she, you know, observed the idea that, that children develop a capacity then to accept some of the difficulties in the world, you know, the fact that mum's not there at the drop of a hat and, 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 um, and to also be able to symbolise the mother, you know, to hold on to the idea that the world does become good again, even though it can feel terrible in a given moment. And, and, and so her idea is that kind of the, the sort of split state of mind, where, which is often gets described as black and white, which is more concrete, you know, it's something that we sort of observed in, in many of the young patients, not all, but, but, but the way in which, as Marcus said earlier, that kind of fixation on, on, you know, well, this is terrible, but if I go to this, it will be amazing. Um, and you hear it in, in, in you know, the, the language they use and the descriptions of what they're hoping for. And it's sort of, I suppose, what what we were trying to do with the theoretical um, exploration is to try and think sort of why has that come about? How can we help the patient to understand that? And then how to help them develop some of these other um, capacities for thinking about themselves. Um, so, and the other thing I was just going to pick up on, you were sort of, because you were sort of mentioning about sort of uh, post-war era and feminism. And as, as, as Marcus said, again, we, we haven't, we, we, we weren't really, we were completely aware of the politics around this, but we've tried to write a book that's really focused on thinking about the children and the young people. But what I would say is that for millennia, sort of, you know, for centuries, I think people have played with their identities. I think, you know, there's always been that exploration of the, the feminine or the masculine for all of us, you know. Um, and, and so I think that, that, you know, and of course we come back to your point about what has actually happened more recently and what is going on, because obviously the environment has changed hugely. There are huge socio-political changes going on, I think, around this. But, but I think you know, whatever those are, what we're trying to do is, is work with people who are trying to find themselves, to find their identity. And it's not about saying you've got to be one or the other. It's about helping them learn in a way to kind of yeah. accept more of who they are and how they can think about themselves. Well, I was just sure, saying yeah. the thing about the paranoid schizoid, I mean, the other thing to say um, about the book is, it, we, as, as Sue said, it's basically it's a, 
It's about working with people. So talking yeah. about our clinical experience and the theory comes in um, behind. I'm just, I think that's really important. Yeah, well, I don't want to put people off with no, the language. No, no, exactly. Julie but, mentioned Yeah, but you were asking about theory. Yeah. But, of course, that sort of black and white thinking, um, you know, it sort of goes along with certain sort of rigid ideologies. You know, women are like this, men are like that. Well, you know, there's always some truth in some of these things, but they can become too fixed, too rigid. Actually, who you are as a person can be expressed in all sorts of ways. You, you can be, you know, a feminine man. You can have feminine bits. And 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 in a way, we were all sort of, um, you know, we were a bit feminine, a bit masculine, and and that's the way it should be. We're trying to, as, as Sue was saying, we're trying to get away from these rigid, fixed ideas that if only I could be the ideal, I would be lovable. And the fact that I'm not the ideal means I'm unacceptable and then something's got to be got rid of. Um, we've got to find ways as people of being ourselves at the end of the day. As a, as a tutor of mine used to say, you get to the age of 50, you realise you're just making the best of a bad job. We've got, we, we've got to find a way of accelerating the fact the world isn't as we would ideally like, and we're not the ideal figures we would want to be. But it, it's okay. You can sort of tolerate the sort of imperfections. Might that be part of the reason why gender dysphoria is so big amongst adolescents today in that at that age, they are struggling with stuff that you and Sue and I will be like, eh. <laughs> 100%. You know, it's a sort of, it's a two of the times when the, when we change the most is, you know, um, toddlerhood and adolescence. You know, the hormones are surging. There are enormous um, physiological changes with psychological and sociological implications and I don't know about you but you know one one feels a bit lost you know who are you where are you going to fit in your body's changing your role in society's changing and um you know in a way there's a sort of wish to sort of um put the put the foot on the brake and say let's stop all this I want to sort of stop this development which is out of control i don't know how i'm going to manage it and in a sense there's nothing new about that i think that's that's always been the case as we transition from childhood to adulthood um there's this sort of crutch 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 point called um adolescence but i think one of the things that we're thinking about psychoanalytically you asked about that and sue touched on the sort of the sort of um, some of the psychoanalytic thinking, but the the ability to tolerate ambiguity, confusion, psychological pain, you know, we need this in society because things, it, as we go through life, because things are not always clear. We need to live with the confusion and, and ambiguities of life to some extent. If we, if we can't tolerate that, we've got a tendency to sort of shift into some sort of action that is trying to sort of sort the problem. Um, 
And one of the things that we find with, with, with some of the kids, and as Sue said, not all, is that they, they don't feel they can manage that sort of confusion, ambiguity and psychological anxiety and pain. And we're trying to provide a holding space in which we just say, OK, let's, let, it's, it's all right to feel confused. You don't have to be certain about everything. And, um, and as, as Sue again said, a lot of the kids have got problems in sort of thinking about themselves as emotional, sentient people in the world. And we're trying to sort of examine that and think about that to try and enhance their capacity to reflect upon themselves with all their frustrations, anxieties and, and dissatisfactions. One reason why I asked you about the role that the diagnosis of gender dysphoria holds historically is because, as you both know, this was an assignation given largely to males until quite recently in the historical trajectory of gender dysphoria. Mm. And of course, I ask about this simply because when we're seeing a 4,000% increase in recent years of referrals of adolescent girls, Obviously, that strikes something in many people, men and women alike. You see that father in Canada who was put into jail for a month now is prohibited from speaking about his case, all because he views the almost forced transition of his daughter as being anathema to his duty as a father. Now, there are people on both sides of this debate who will say children at a certain age know what they want. Well, wait a second. <laughs> uh, as you both have probably heard from people like myself, because I'm myself gay, uh, I would have been transitioned if this had been going on. Because there are two forces here. There's society, but it's also going on within families in terms of there are parents who want to meet their child's desires to make them happy. There are homophobic parents. There are all sorts of parents out there. And some of them might be a mixture of the two. It's not that anyone is purely malevolent or purely benevolent. The problem comes that when we have these societal pressures, and now 20 years after the internet has very much advanced in, in terms of chat rooms, we're seeing kids represented from David Bell, where kids are coming to the Tavistock with already narratives ready to convince the therapist that they really fit the bill. And many people, I've spoken to many other practitioners who say they know that some of these kids were on chat rooms being told what to say. How can a therapist or a psychoanalyst or a psychiatrist know when they're dealing with someone who's been coached as to not? I know that's, I'm sorry to ask the question, but it's, this is very thorny because you have people arguing that kids should be made to wait until at least they're old enough to understand the consequences. And at the same time, you two and other therapists are very concerned that the kids are getting the proper treatment. Yeah, it's a million dollar question. How do you tell you know, what the patient says is true? And in a way, you, you, you never really do. But again, this is why we advocate for you know, taking time in this work and, and allowing for those therapeutic relationships to develop. Because, you know, I can think of many cases, not even in this area of work, where you might say to a patient, you know, how was your childhood? And they go, oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, I had a great childhood. And you ask them to tell you about it and they'll tell you one time on the beach. 
you know, a year or so later in therapy, all sorts of things might emerge for that patient because they trust that they can talk more openly about it. They've begun to understand things about themselves. They may feel it's okay to express things which previously felt forbidden or they just allowed their own minds to come to things and, and and I would say it's the same in this area you know that a child who may and you know this is one of the sort of diagnostic criteria you mentioned in in uh, the the diagnosis you know consistent and persistent but you know and I know people often make use this analogy but I've worked with uh, young people with eating disorders <clears throat> And they are absolutely persistent and consistent in the ideas that they are fat and that their life is better if they eat 300 calories a day and that the scales are everything. Um, you know, that, that, so, so I suppose that, that the importance of taking time and developing a therapeutic relationship is that you start to begin to see more of the person. And if you keep an open mind as a therapist, you then allow your patient to emerge sort of with you and with with sort of um, helping explore or the areas you notice they keep going away from you say I noticed that about you and and that's difficult to think about perhaps and then you think about why it's difficult to think so it's it's sort of and all that sort of thing takes so much time um, but it can really help a person sort of you know unfold. Except your role would never be to tell the anorexic you're right you're fat and this is, I'm sure you've read this critique. Feminists have been making it because women's bodies have always been at that crosshairs of social construction and evaluation and critique. Mm -hmm. Why is it that now, I mean, obviously taking the slower approach, I think most reasonable people would agree is the better road, especially with children, because anyone who has children knows my daughter likes one food yesterday and I swear I won't give it to her on her plate today. And then she'll say, but I love it. That's how fast they change. So how is it that psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and psychiatry around this sole issue of gender dysphoria head towards that goal of helping the subject, but often that helping the subject comes with confirming not that they're fat, but that they are the sex they claim to be. How did that shift happen? Well, I don't know, but I think that it's, it's complicated. There are all sorts of um, pressures being brought to bear. And of course, you know, psychotherapy and mental health practice takes place within the context of, of society. So we, we've got a, a sort of chapter in the book about that. But the book is clinical, but it's, it's just saying in a way, look, what goes on in mental health is, is happening within a context. Um, but what I what I would say is it's this sort of inquiry that's required. You you, you know because as Sue said that you know someone presents at the, at the first point and they say this is the way it is. Well, one's listening to that. There's conviction about what's being conveyed, but you're you're sort of keeping an open mind all the time about what that represents. And as you were saying, see, often it's it's said by the JID service that the kid is absolutely clear this is what they want. Now, it seems to me a sort of break with good mental health practice that you say, well, that's good. There are no doubts because actually um, it, that, that's a very odd state of mind. I mean, if you're making a big decision about something that's got enormous implications, 
you expect there to be doubts, questions, worries about the implications. The absence of doubt is the problem. It's certainty, which we've got to be sort of a, a bit sceptical of. And in a way, our approach would be one of saying, okay, you know, there's conviction here in what's being conveyed. We understand this is what the individual feels. But our job is not to just agree or disagree, it's to say, okay, how does that un- how does that help us understand what 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 else is going on? So you all the time um, with your explanation and curiosity, you're trying to expand the picture of who this individual is and why they've um, sort of focused down on one particular way of thinking about things. So that's an important state of mind. Now, I would say that that's also important when people come in as a sort of with a, a tutored approach, which often is rather formulaic and lacks the capacity to sort of say, well, what about this? Or what do you think about that? Or what's missing from that? Because if you just go, well, this is the narrative and it's then met by the clinician who goes, oh, well, okay, that's your story. It's sort of curious. What, why, you know, you know, what, you don't seem to consider this or I, I'd like to think with you about that. Or so you're sort of, Again, you're, you're not interested in a narrow track. You're interested in a sort of broader picture of what's outside the, um, the, the sort of narrative that the individual's chosen, what's missing. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. You have a chapter dealing with fixed states of mind. It would seem to me that adolescents can fixate on certain ideas, whether it's what am I going to do after high school? And they get very nervous about that or concerned or excited. And gender. This is the thing that really fascinates me is that you're not getting people coming to see you saying, I really am Ziggy Stardust, because we had those kinds of gender stereotypes broken down for us in rock stars from especially the 70s and 80s. I can't think of men in the 70s and 80s who didn't do some form of cross-dressing, even if it was only on one album. So you have these really groundbreaking icons that we all grew up with. Freddie Mercury. (laughs) No one made a mistake that Freddie Mercury was a woman, even when it was well known that he was gay. No one ever did that. So has the internet fed this in a larger degree than many people are realizing? It's a difficult one, isn't it? I think, um, as Marcus says in our in our book, we've we, we've tried just to touch on the areas which we think have been part of the influence, really to help kind of professionals working in the area understand why there may be the pressures that they experience around this and the sensitivities. Um, but but I think that the the, the Undoubtedly, the internet influences the children of today way more, you know, well, of course it does, way more than it certainly did us, but even way more than 10 years ago. 
Um, I, I, and I think, I mean, our son was showing us a, a video of, of Ricky Gervais doing a sort of stand-up routine uh, at the weekend. And But one of the things he said is, you know, that people just, they, they don't even care if it's correct. They just want to be popular. They want mm. to, you know, know that they're saying the right thing, even if they know it's, you know, it, it may be lacking in fact. I can't remember exactly mm. what the mm. ske sketch was, but mm. but I think what he was commenting on is that there is there is also an element of contagion, isn't there, that, that you, you want to be seen to mm. be saying the right thing mm. and, and giving the right message. And so I think that must be so difficult for young children because, again, you know, what we're trying to encourage with education in any area is, is, is um, investigation and exploration mm. and kind of considering things and turning things over so mm. that you kind of come to uh, mm. some opinion for yourself. Whereas I think for them, they're really influenced by the messages they receive. Mm. The other thing is, I think that, that uh, again, having seen some of the younger um, girls that I know, teenagers that I know, um, you know, that, that they're looking either for perfection, a sort of perfection of feminism and femininity, if you like, that, that doesn't exist. Um, you know, we all had to put up with our slightly wobbly tummies and our sort of podgy faces and what have you and the, the spots. But, you know, now they kind of, they curate their pictures online and, and everyone looks like a, a film star. Um, and, and I just think that must be so difficult for young people to grow up with if they've got acne and, and you know, a less than wonderful <laughs> physique or something. I just think how extraordinary. So I think the internet, undoubtedly um, but I think also there's something wider going on and I'm sure you know all about that and it's not particularly for mm. us to discuss here but there there are people looking at that like Jennifer Bielek is sort of investigating the background in terms of the money and big pharmacy and big pharma and and um, you know and the political what's gone on in Silicon Valley and and, and but that's not really yeah what we're about we're trying to just help think about the clinical area. I, I, I was just sort of thinking yeah. that one of the phenomena, and, and Sue touched, touched on it earlier on, is this sort of feeling of not fitting in, feeling lost. And for many of us, that was basically what adolescence was all about. And I think to sort of counter out that, that, that anxiety and not fitting with the ideal, that um, people sort of go looking on the internet and you can find groups which will say, well, you know, welcome in, we'll, we'll give you a place where you belong as someone who doesn't feel like they fit in. One of the characteristics of these groups is often they're quite, um, they're quite rigid in the, the sort of the belonging, the cost of belonging, if you like. The qualification for Qualification membership, yeah. for membership, mm -hmm. and they can become um, quite gang-like in saying you've got to completely fit the mould and um, any sort of critical thought is not allowed. And as, as Sue said, in a way, whilst we understand these are forces that we, we're, we're all familiar with, the tendency to want to sort of fit in with the ideal, one's trying to support this capacity to think outside um, those that sort of restriction, if you like, which can become quite tyrannical. Be a bit sceptical, be a bit questioning, think about, 
you know, things outside the box. You know, th this is the sort of basis of mature thought, isn't it? It's to, it's to, it's to be able to think about things from different points of view, not to go down sort of rigid tram lines. And that's basically the sort of approach that the book is advocating. I think it's difficult, though, because I think I even heard you use the term a bit earlier on, you said of something like both sides. And I, I kind of once or twice journalists have, have, have used that expression. And I, I kind of sort of say I'd like to think it's not about the sides. And of course, I understand what they mean, because there are, you know, people who really promote uh, uh the the ideas about uh yes transgender identities and so on and then there are the people who are known as sort of gender critics or whatever but i wish it wasn't about size and in a way it's a bit that's a bit again the kind of clinical challenge you know that that you're trying to allow for things it, you know it doesn't have to be one or the other you know it's not black and white it's not fixed in either space and i i think we could end up Either we could be everyone's friend or we'll have no friends at all, because in a way, whichever groups we talk to, I always feel, you know, if it's a feminist group, I think there are elements there. And I think, well, it's not only about that. Or, you know, I talked to a group of, you know, I, um, sort of homosexual uh, representatives and, and, and they've got a certain view. And I think, well, is it only about that? And anyway, I, I, I kind of feel that um, we might end up with with no friends, but, but, but I kind of really want to kind of convey that idea that 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 it's to explore and 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 consider many views um yeah sorry i'm sorry no no not at all i was talking to a, a documentary maker from germany and he was asking me about the sort of environment i said well the, the politicization means it's like sort of um you know there are two sort of tribes fighting mm -hmm. and he was saying to me, well, in, but in Germany, that, I mean, the, the numbers are on the rise in Germany. But he was saying, you know, there's a, there's a guy who prescribes puberty blockers, um, but he worries about um, the long-term implications. And there's another guy who's against the prescription of puberty blockers, but they talk to one another and they debate and I said, that's a, that, that for me is a clinical situation, mm. you know, where, you know, people have got concerns. They're not completely wedded to one particular view um, and they can think about the downside of their particular approach and maybe can have some respect for the other view, which may also have its downside. I mean, you're allied to your particular side of the argument, but there is capacity to to talk clinically and consider that all interventions have their positive sides and their side effects. And it's a, it's a medically responsible attitude to think about those and keep an open mind and understand that, that, that whatever treatment approach you take, there are always gains and losses. Um, and I suppose that, yeah, just yeah. to add to that, because I'm thinking again about the clinical situation, because I suppose I was just mulling over in my mind, because I already worry that I've used the term homosexual instead of LGB. You know, that's how kind of <laughs> this area is. But but I think, you see, you do hear a, a lot about, oh, 
the, all these children are autistic or, or that it's, it's internalized homophobia. And, and of course, what, and there are other things around that. They've all been traumatized, you know, comorbidities. And I, I think the important thing is to say, yes, some of them may have yeah. internalized That's homophobia. Right. Some of them may have autistic uh, tendencies on the spectrum and so on, but, but, or autism. But, but I think the important thing is, the individual you have in front of you is the one you've got to get to know. And yes, they may end up to be gay, but that might not be the issue. It might be that they they feel they can't separate from a very dominating mother or something, you know. So so I think that's the important thing. Mm. Sorry, I just wanted yeah, to no, say that. No, but it's it's about kind of keeping an open mind in yeah. the clinical room yeah. as well. Yeah. I am very appreciative of the fact that you have been speaking out about comorbidities, as have other clinicians, because it speaks against the people that make this into a black and white issue. Mm. Psychological issues are rarely, if ever, unidimensional. They're very complex because humans are complex. Might this also be part of a larger problem of our current society to want to address complexity and discomfort. I had Lisa Marciano on the show the other day, and we were talking about this through her work with Jungian psychoanalysis and the ways in which people are not willing to go through discomfort, even if that discomfort is part of our change as adults and as adolescents. And it's obviously hard for clinicians to convince a child that being in an uncomfortable situation is in the long run good for them, because not just children, all of us want immediate gratification. So it's not a coincidence that Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud all came about in the same era. We're dealing with the way in which subjectivity was constructed in the 19th century, which has oozed over greatly until now the early 21st century. What can be taken away from your book that people might better understand not only the socio-political cultural debates around this, but how this might turn into a happy story. Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the thing is, as you said there, you know, we're all tempted to to have sort of um, a simple solution to a problem. It's, you know, none of us like the sort of discomfort of thinking, oh, crikey, it's com- quite complicated. It gives me a headache and one thing or another. But, and, um, you know, so so that's human nature. But I think there are really sort of important things at stake. You know, in actual fact, in a sense, one, one's got to sort of, as a mental health practitioner, I think you've got a sort of duty to say, okay, we understand that, that that's the sort of drive, but actually, you know, we, we're interested in getting to know you. And to go back to the positive story, it's, it's quite, it's, it's, you know, there is something creative and developmental about discovering we're more complicated than we think we are. And the world's more complicated than we think it is, you know, and that's where in a way, the sort of creativity lies, you know, how, how you, you know, this is what you're like, and this is the way the world is, and how you're going to find a way of sort of being able to be productive, while being yourself, um, without completely subjecting yourself to some sort of t- tyrannical um, repression, you know, and, and Marx and Freud very much were preoccupied with with that um and uh and it, yeah so i think i think 
that with with some of the some of the kids we see that often they've been struggling with themselves in the world for quite some time and you begin to notice things about them in a in a way that they haven't noticed before and that they can sometimes smile and get a bit liberated with the idea that they can think about things you know they've got a mind that can think about things and you know, they are, as Sue said right at the beginning, they're often very fearful about their minds, but actually using our minds um, is a really liberating thing. And uh, you can see the smiles on their faces when some of these, they go, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Well, might some of the problems around gender dysphoria and the cures, the quote unquote cures to it, be caught up in our mechanisms of late stage capitalism where as you guys began earlier with the idea that you have patients who might be anorexic and you're not going to assert that they are really the overweight individual they believe themselves to be. Might this be part of the problem that with capitalism, we have a problem that needs to be solved. We need a market that needs to be filled. And that the way that we are now socialized today, everything has to have an answer. Not only does it have to be painless and fast, this is why medication has become such a capture and not just this, but in many other fields, but we want immediate solutions. We don't want timely solutions that will involve our participation, our discomfort, and maybe having to turn away certain behaviors or work on certain things. Is it not just easier in the Taylorist line-driven economy of, okay, that's it, let's fix it, on and on and on, almost as if we're playing a video game and we just quickly move through it? Because it seems that our lives, I'm putting this aside from internet use of these adolescents, our lives, mine too, the internet has not made my life easier, it's made my life harder. The only thing it's helped me is not to have to queue up at the post office for stamps. I feel like there's more and more demands on me as an individual. Now, how do adolescents deal with this? See, see so what, one thing we sort of talk about in the book, um, again, Sue mentioned it earlier on, is a sort of development of a sort of... You, you know, you're like this in relation to the world. There, there are often grievances. We're not as perfectly made as we would have liked. Um, we sometimes blame, you know, our parents for the things, <laughs> you know, and, and in a way you can develop an alternative reality. We think of it as a sort of daydream or something like that. And the, the, the thing is, is that that, again, it's common and it's not abnormal at all. The, 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 what's helpful is if you can actually distinguish between the, a, a daydream and, and reality, and often that we're trying to sort of bridge the gap. How do we achieve what we would ide- ideally want in a, in a, in a realistic way? And, um, and, and in a sense, you, you're not trying to sort of rule out daydreams or anything like that. You just, it's just helpful if you know the difference between, say, thought that is based on reality testing and, and daydreams. Now, the, the, in relation to, um, we don't, I wouldn't say we're qualified to talk about the sort of um, sociological aspects really, but, but we are in a particular place where with medicine and sometimes in, in relation to the, to the internet and the way we live our lives, it, 
it can be beguiling to believe that we're sort of godlike creatures that can change ourselves or the world according to our wishes and wants. And this is elude this sort of difficult process called life, and and it's over to the next generation. And this is the, you know, these are the rhythms of life. And um, you know, we've got to find a way of coming to terms with these realities, I think, rather than retreating from them, although we all do that from time to time. In your book, you do address the political situation in the last chapter and the, the social and cultural environment as well. Now, while that exists, there will be some critics who will say that addressing gender dysphoria is participating in a politics in the sense that feminists have said over and over again that the heightened events of upskirting at schools, the heightened aggressions towards high school females in the last few years in the UK is indicative of a social issue against which some of your patients might be coming to you. So how do you address that when we're looking at what I call a moibus strip of sorts, where on the one side it's psychological, on the other side social, should medicine be caught up in dealing with social issues? I start, I mean, I was, gosh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I suppose in a way, I feel that, I mean, I've worked in this area for about 40 years now. I think we're always, you know, our patients are always in context with, with society and their external world. Usually it's, 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 it's sometimes a smaller, it's a sort of microcosm. It's usually their work and what affects their work or their families and so on. But I think it is, I would say we're kind of always in relation. I think the thing that you're picking up on, which is, I think, a real challenge for us all now, is that the internet has brought about an instant world you know that that all the things that in the past you know when I was a teenager you know I think there was one grubby copy of a sort of spicy novel that used to go around and everyone used to go to the appropriate pages and read the sort of extract whereas now on the internet you know kids can just click into pornography sites and uh you know so and and I think that that things transmit much more quickly and they're exposed to so much more so I think we have a real issue and also just to pick up on what you were saying about the the pleasure principle and the sort of difficulty in facing our limitations. I think society has been a bit responsible for that as well. I think that um, parents lost their authority, I think, uh, a little bit. And I'm going to sound like a dinosaur now, but I think so many parents that we come across, they're almost afraid to say no to a child or to encourage their child to sort of do something which is a bit uncomfortable for them and and it's like you know when kids are really young they have to learn to walk and the way is that you can experiment and sometimes never expose them to the harm of falling over they will never learn to walk and I think psychologically that that, that there is something going on that is really worrying in that area as well but we're not sort of sociologists but it's the context Mm. I suppose has become much more magnified in answer Mm. to your question so I think of course we're in relation to it and of course it impacts on what we do. I mean David Bell has written very well about this and Mm. many many others you know there are problems of sort of misogyny and a sort of hatred of women and um, particularly you see these sort of 
and 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 people think that that is very influential is why there are now so many girls mm. who are sort of um pushing ahead to to transition during puberty mm. um that, but i so so one of the things again that we we often see is that that, that often the individual um, that we got in front of us is, is as I was describing earlier on, they, they feel quite fragile. They don't really feel very comfortable. It's a word that they use a lot and very able to sort of, you know, how are they going to um, uh, go through puberty, the development of their sexuality? They're really, there's a lot of anxiety about that. And the, the often there's a sort of sense of them feeling extremely sensitive to how they're viewed and where their place is. And in a sense, there's a sort of idea, you know, in this avatar that's been created that um, sort of transitioning is going to move them into a place where they feel much less vulnerable to the sort of effects of themselves in society you know and and in a sense um you know so that that sort of goes along i think with a sort of macho culture you know men don't feel as much aren't as emotional women are very emotional extremely sensitive those sorts of stereotypes it's as if they got sort of rather fixed and if you could move from this sensitive individual who feels things very intensely to some sort of you know where you're living in some sort of carapace which is going to protect you and that's one of the things we see quite a lot um and maybe it goes along with these wider social stereotypes that, that um i think seem to be around at the moment men are tough they can you know women are women feel i mean of course it's much more complicated than that some men feel a lot some women are you know tough these are complete stereotypes not helpful well also the notion that has not been addressed for a good three decades is that when transgender identity emerged it was about this notion of the feminine and the masculine it was never really about i'm talking about transgender not transsexual by the way this theory that emerged in universities was about accessing the feminine. I learned femininity from men. In fact, years ago, I was at a souk in Morocco with my then boyfriend, and he found a shirt. It was a pink shirt, and he loved it, and he brought it back home. And I said, oh, I'm so happy to see men wearing pink. He says, yeah, but it's a little feminine. Well, guess what his idea of feminine was? It wasn't the color. He spent that evening sewing up the buttonholes and moving the buttons to the other side. That was the feminine. It wasn't the pink, you see. So this is about how gender is read differently culture to culture. Because one thing that strikes me, and I'm talking about the adults who claim a, a transgender identity, let's put it that way, is I, I always wonder, I said, why is it that we're seeing very cultural types coming out in support of gender identity, where it's never a man who claims he wants to do 90% of the housework. You're not seeing men wanting to don pantsuits. Remember Cheryl Teagues? Well, that's an American reference, but I'm not seeing the pantsuits making a comeback among the transgender community. So I do have issues in the way that I find 
and I'm using the word anthropologically here, but the way I find gender being fetishized in terms of these artifacts that come to represent something that seemed to be falling out of a Rock Hudson and Doris Day film, far less out of my reality, because I'm sitting here in yoga clothes talking to you. I'm not particularly feminine or masculine in the sense of since the pandemic began, I barely have time to remember what clothes I'm wearing, if I'm wearing them at all, because I have two children, two small children. So this is the kind of life that I do not see reflected in the gender identitarian movement. I don't see anyone considering motherhood, not really. Well, it is one of the, there, there was recently in the UK, a, a program on TV and parents were kind of, they, they were talking about how their two-year-old had decided um, you know, he was a girl. The outrage was that, that the, the interviewers were saying, well, isn't it marvellous, you know, that you're so accepting that, of course, the irony of it was that actually what they were talking about is if their little boy liked dresses, he must be a girl. And it's like, you know, the, the most simplistic thing, but why can't a little boy like wearing dresses? My boys used to dress up in dresses when they were kids, but I didn't think they were transgender or had a problem with their gender identity. I just thought they liked putting on dresses and experimenting with that version of feminine femininity. So I, I agree with you. I think it's it's a strange, um, and, and I again, I don't know, it's not really something that we've particularly looked into, but presumably, you see, is if, you, if you're making that choice towards that identity, you know, for them, that's the way they will feel they can most identify as feminine, isn't it? If a man kind of does ultra femininity. Um, so I suppose that's the way I would understand someone wanting to present in that way. But what I object to is the idea that if a little boy, you know, wants to do that, that, that that's somehow ex an expression of transgenderism in them, you know, and I think that's that's the place where I would really kind of delineate really apart, you know, I think people can wear what they want. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's another big sort of um, thing behind the book is, is the idea that we're developmental, you know, we take time to work out who we are over, you know, over a period of time with the support of others you know, and it's a story that is unfolding and should be allowed to unfold without sort of prematurely sort of you know, sort of sending people down a particular run. You know, I, I, we don't think that's helpful. To, you know, some people develop a bit earlier and some people a bit later, but you don't want to foreclose that. It's a sort of it's a journey of exploration. And in as much as your tasks as therapist as analyst is to deal with the individual subject, I can't help but notice that many people in your position are noticing, as you said earlier, these sites on the internet that want to include them within the community. A lot of this comes up to the issue of feeling like we have, I as an individual have no place to go, especially adolescents feel this. And much of what I imagine comes through your door are individuals in, in search of a community. Meanwhile, the same parents, and yeah. I have looked at this a lot, they are working jobs, sometimes three and four jobs with very little time for their children. The, you know, the helicopter parenting phase is, is over now, but we're seeing the after effects of that. As you mentioned earlier, so parents who can't say no, parents who 
can't put boundaries because in our late capitalist society, we have somehow bizarrely, and I think very wrongfully equated no as being a bad thing, yes as being a good thing, in the same way that a lot of people involved in the lobbying around this issue believe that clinicians who say, let's take it slowly, are gatekeeping, but if you fast track someone, that's good. And it's a very strange paradigm where anthropologically we're seeing yes means all good and no means all bad. It's, it's very moralistic if you think about it in a Christian format. Yet what you just said actually is happening in the States with someone like Diane Ehrenzaft, who's on video telling other therapists that if a child rips off their blue onesie, that he's really identifying as a girl. Or if a girl pulls at her barrettes, she's identifying as a boy. And she was talking about two-year-old children, mind you. And this is great currency in the US, especially in certain metropolitan centers like San Francisco, because of the society's makeup, the way in which often our societies years later feel very guilty about how the AIDS crisis was handled. So you're seeing this overpouring of sympathy, especially from the least likely actors, as we're seeing in the last few days, Stonewall is taking quite a, a battering. But rightfully so, because the organization that was supposed to protect us, gay men and women, has bizarrely been this safe space of harboring some of the most homophobic sentiment. And I have a hard time squaring all this up because it's not just them, it's HRC in the US. There are many other organizations in the US that have been doing the same thing. How is it that therapists can access, I mean, you're dealing in your book with comorbidities, a very fractured sociopolitical environment. And then to what degree are these individual patients coming to see a therapist over an issue that has to do with, they feel lonely because in the absence of parents who are working so many jobs, no time, parents who won't let their kids out to meet up with friends, they're left to social media, chat rooms, what hope have they to feel like they are part of something? I mean, we, we, we've got to say, you know, the, the, the parents that come to us, they're obviously, they're often very concerned and then, you know, they're not, they're not absent they're parents. They're not absent parents. So, so well, again, that's it's not the impression. Again, it's, it's a mixture. It's a mixture. It? You, yeah. you can't really sort of, but, um, and, and certainly like, like most of us, um, or a lot of us at a certain age, you know, you feel that you're not that sure what your kids are up to on the internet. That's a concern and how to manage it without sort of um, being very controlling, but without being too permissive on the other, you know, on the other hand, these are, these are things that modern parents are having to learn about, I guess. Um, so that is one area they don't know, you know, often know what's going on on the internet with their, their kid. Um, although that's that's a that's not entirely true with all parents either, is it? But um... no, I th I was just thinking about that. I think one of the things is that that what's striking is how easily I think people converse on the net, you know, kids and adults. But I was just thinking about how kids, in a sense, in their rooms they don't practice relationships very well, do they? They've got a version of it. It's much, it, a, it's, it's sort of easier to say something. It's much easier to dump someone in one line on a text than it is to go and face them and say, I'm ending this relationship. But I suppose I was also thinking about how 
that that very way in which they're communicating it it deprives a lot of young kids of social development of relating in a way so so it's not even that I don't you know as you say it's not necessarily that the parents have been neglectful I think again it's societally things have changed haven't they I think kids uh, someone did research and Deborah So was it said Mm. kids are having much less sex now you know and Abigail Shreer was it Abigail was it yes but I think Deborah talked about it as well so but 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 it's I mean it's it's an interesting thing isn't it that kids are, are losing some of their not all of them and I don't want to generalize but for the kid who is more on the internet they are socializing in a in a very very different way it, it's not a human contact and so that's going to deprive them of their development as well I think one of my observations is that there is a different experience that I have had working away from the clinic where medicalization is available to the kids and they know that and their parents know that and and the the the, and of course it may be something about self-selection but but the kids who've come now um to see me uh, or young people that, that that in a way they know i don't have that i'm not gatekeeping anything because i am only me and i'm only here to help them think about their lives and what's going on for them. And it has made a difference actually to the quality of the work, because I think when you're in a clinic and the drugs are on the shelf, you know, that the kids can see them like the sweets at the checkout in the supermarket, it's really hard. um, I think perhaps for clinicians to keep exploring and assessing and working psychodynamically with their patients because the pressure is on. So I think that's been a really helpful learning experience for me and actually given me a bit more hope, I think, that that you can hold things open. Um, And whether or not my young people go on to transition, I think that they will hopefully kind of have a better sense of themselves and who they are and some of the difficulties they've been having up to now and some of the things they've been avoiding in their minds and to feel that they've got more ability or capacity to face themselves and then to deal with life a bit better, you know, wherever they go and whatever they do.